Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome to We Are History. We're back, John. It's a new series. A brand new series. I'd do a drum roll if I could do one, but I can't. (laughs) Oh, that's the countdown <laughs> clock. Okay. That'll do. Uh, <laughs> it's great to be back. Thank you for your patience, everyone. We've been busy doing other things. We have. Thank you to those of you that came to my tour. That's yes. very much appreciated. Yes, that's very kind of both of you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we've had some nice reviews while we've been away, haven't we, Angela? We have, and we like getting those, don't we, John? It gives Thank us you. a warm, tingly feeling Thank inside. you for writing those nice things about how much you enjoy We Are History. We got one that upset you, didn't we, John? Well, yeah. We got on. one. One person did complain that we talk too fast. So I'm going to slow down. I've always been told that I talk too fast. Me too. So I'll try and slow down a bit too. I'll endeavour to speak more clearly, like the bloke who does the shipping forecast on the BBC's home service. <laughs> Just as well you don't do the shipping forecast, John. Everyone would be like, wait, what was that? I missed that. He said it too fast. <laughs> Five hours later, they're sinking. Warnings of storms in Pharaoh Pharaoh, Vikings 40, Fisher German Bite. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just enthusiasm. Oh, that's good. We don't mind you complaining, by the way. I take. It I do. Chin. I okay. mind. Don't do it. Anyway, <laughs> what are we talking about this week, John? It's a proper bit of important history this week. A very Ooh, significant, my serious face on. in the history of Great Britain and Ireland. An event that was once seen as the defining moment in our national story. We're talking about the glorious revolution of 1688 which is really the moment that Parliament asserts itself against the monarchy and becomes supreme, if you don't count that. Yeah, they had won a civil war 40 years earlier and chopped the king's head off. That's fairly assertive. (laughs) I mean, I think Oliver Cromwell could give up the old assertiveness classes after he'd appointed himself dictator and had his predecessor decapitated, no? Uh, Yes, but you see, he made a terrible tactical mistake of dying, you see. Ah, yes. Uh, And then you have the Restoration and Charles II coming to the throne and everyone's saying... God, those Puritans were a bit much, weren't they? No Christmas, no singing, no dancing, no theatre. I knew some of the plays I've sat through in my time. No theatre might be doing people a favour. You might think that, Angela. I couldn't possibly comment. Oh, of course. You've got loads of lovely theatre friends now, haven't you, John? All these theatre producers and directors you've got to be nice to. Come on, O'Farrell, admit it in public. Lots of plays are really boring. I love the smell of the grease paint and the dimming of the lights. The theatre people are the best people in the world. Not falling anyone, mate. 
Go and sit through three hours of a little life and tell me how much fun you had at that. So anyway, <laughs> Charles II comes back to the throne in 1660 and everyone just pretends the Civil War never happened. It was all like, what, what was I doing in the 1640s? Me? Oh, well, I was on a gap year or two. I went to Machu Picchu, actually. Yeah, I really found myself. What's this round head helmet? Oh, oh, I just got that at a car boot sale. Not mine, no. I, I was going to use it to plant geraniums in. <laughs> um, yes, after all the suffering of the English Civil War, Say, John, we do have a podcast about that. If you're not up yep. on that, listen yep. to that. Yep, true. Yeah, after all the suffering of the English Civil War, they didn't want to go through all that again. Uh, so despite all the power that Parliament had won, after Cromwell died and General Monk marched from Scotland to London to prevent anarchy breaking out, they eventually invited the son of the old king back and he sort of carried on where his dad left off, really, just without being so rude or arresting quite so many MPs. They don't actually call it the English Civil War anymore, do they? For no. good reason, because it wasn't just English and it definitely wasn't very civil. Uh, some call it the British Civil War or the War of Three Kingdoms. Yeah, some Marxist historians call it the English Revolution, uh, mm. which might be worth it just to annoy the French by reminding <laughs> them that we chopped the head off our king ages before they did. But the trouble with the English Revolution as a name is that 1688 is also an English revolution. And then in 1968, there was revolution by the Beatles. And we don't want to get mixed up with that. Oh, you've lost me, John. I think you're veering <laughs> off the subject matter a bit there. I'm pretty sure the Beatles didn't play a significant part in the 17th century struggle between Parliament and the King. I'd say none at all. Probably fair to say. Yeah. Sorry, I will stay focused on the matter in hands. And the Beatles also did Revolution 9 as well, didn't they? But that was just nuts. John. Okay, sorry. 1680s. Parliament was a very militantly Protestant body. Puritanism wasn't dead. It was just a bit less trendy to wear plain black frock and black hats when the new king was all frilly collars and big purple velvet bed jackets. Yeah, fair to say Charles II was by no stretch of the imagination a Puritan. He had a fairly rampant appetite for extramarital sex. His Portuguese wife never bore him an heir, probably because he was too busy always having sex with every duchess in the kingdom. Uh, Not to mention the actress Nell Gwynne, of course. Imagine a senior royal running off with some actress today. Unimaginable, John. (laughs) What's the catchphrase of this podcast? Of Of course, course, that that could could never never happen happen today. today. On his deathbed, Charles said, don't let poor Nelly starve. Mm. So he obviously felt some affection for her. Fun fact, my sister had two golden retrievers called Charles and Nell. And they spent a lot of time humping as well. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, Charles was succeeded by his brother, the Duke of York. Not that one. Uh, or, or that one, no. who became James II, or for our Scottish listeners, James the Seventh. Now, James Stuart had become a Catholic at some point during his brother's reign, um, just decided that's what he wanted to be. And if he'd sort of done it discreetly, there might not have been so many problems. Yes. I do want to say one thing about this anti-Catholicism is that it's a lot more complicated than just hating people who had a different religion to you. Although there was, of course, plenty of that involved as well. And I think I went on about this uh, in a previous episode, but England's peculiar freedoms for those men who had them were very tied up with their Protestantism. The Catholic monarchies of France and Spain were dictatorships, no balance of powers at all. And that's before you have to start agreeing with everything the Pope says as well. So being anti-Catholic in England back then was also about protecting the limited freedoms that the Protestant ruling classes had. And maybe even the upper middle classes too, however you define that. The people who shopped at Waitrose, not Little. That'll be it, Yeah. yeah. 
Catholic gravy is just bisto. Remember that blackboard in Derry, girls? <laughs> so as long as James's Protestant daughter, Mary, was next in line after James the Catholic, yep. the prospect of the 50-year-old Catholic briefly sitting on the English throne wouldn't be worth risking a civil war over. Yeah, Parliament, of course, was not completely united in its approach to the future of the monarchy. And during what became known as the exclusion crisis... Two distinct parties emerged in the House of Commons. The more pro-royal court party were dubbed Tories and the country party in favour of excluding James were dubbed Whigs. Yeah, both names were originally insults, weren't they? A Whigamore was a Scottish cattle driver, while a Tory was an Irish bandit. But these became the accepted names of the two groups that evolved into what we now know as the Conservatives and Liberal Party. Yeah, perhaps our modern insults were one day evolved into the accepted <laughs> political labels. In the House of Commons today, the record of Rishi Sunak's fascist bastard party was attacked by Keir Starmer's lefty scumbags. <laughs> Back when the Whigs tried to introduce a bill excluding Charles's openly Catholic brother from the English throne, Charles suspended Parliament and for the last few years of his reign, he just ruled without it, which sort of hinted at what was to come out of James, I think. I think Cromwell would have been turning in his grave if Charles hadn't already dug him up and chopped him into pieces. <laughs> Absolutely. One. The remarkable thing about the restoration of the monarchy is that Parliament had fought and won a war and in 1660 it sort of held all the cards. The powerless royal exile had no bargaining power at all when he was invited back. And yet the upper-class idiots who made up the Cavalier Parliament, they sort of made the fatal mistake of investing all their faith in his good character, in their sort of naive hope that he could be trusted to behave honourably. That never works, does nope. it? Who should we get to investigate wrongdoing by the police? What about the police? Oh, yes, that sounds like a good plan. <laughs> now, who's going to regulate Fleet Street? How about Fleet Street? I can't see that no, going quite. wrong. That might be a good place to take our first break, get a cup of tea and think about how lucky we are to live in such a wonderful democratic society. <laughs> Hello and welcome back. You are listening to We Are History, where we're talking about the glorious revolution of 1688. So, one parliament had won a war against an absolutist monarch and the next parliament blithely just handed his son absolute power and then saw the same tensions re-emerge, funnily enough. Yeah, but it was the terror of slipping into another civil war that prevented many from objecting to the subsequent behaviour of Charles II, even though he tested the patience of parliament to the very limit over the 25 years that he reigned. His brother, on the other hand, overstepped the line within about the first five minutes. James, uh, he proved a brave and effective commander in the Navy, hadn't he? He captured yeah. New Amsterdam from the Dutch and as, uh, as Duke of York, the city was renamed New York in his honour. Of course. Yeah. And of course, it's very different back then. Far fewer skyscrapers. Absolutely. And we talked, didn't we, on that episode about the uh, Great Fire of London. We talked mm. about how brave and hands-on Charles and James had been, showing more yeah. leadership and initiative than the useless mayor of London. So despite being Catholic, James II was actually a popular figure when he came to the throne in 1683. And Parliament could tolerate the idea of a Catholic monarch because the next person in line, his sister Mary, was a Protestant. So we just have this 
yeah. get through this one and there's another Protestant on the other side. Yeah, and the British elite might have been able to tolerate James II if his Catholicism, that's a hard word to say, <laughs> had been a private personal matter. But he'd converted from Protestantism and there's no zealot like a recent convert. Oh, there? yeah, they're the worst. Excuse me, your cigarette smoke's drifting over the fence into my garden, says the man who used to smoke 80 a day. <laughs> exactly yeah. right, isn't it? Um, so to the alarm of many lifelong English Catholics who feared James's actions would provoke a backlash, James appeared determined to try and make England a Roman Catholic state. He filled official positions with papists, rejecting the best candidates in favour of those who would promote what he believed to be the one true faith. So in his mind, he's merely redressing an existing imbalance. James II is an equal opportunities employer <laughs> and applications are particularly welcome from those with a preference for rosary beads and Eucharist wafers. Exactly. That's what he's doing. <laughs> but with all the political nous that his uh, father had shown in the run-up to his execution... James issued the so-called Declaration of Indulgence. Now, by modern standards, this would be a very progressive document, allowing freedom of religion, removing the bar on Catholics occupying official posts and removing penalties for failing to attend Anglican services on a Sunday. But back in 1687, mm. this was like a declaration that Al-Qaeda, the IRA and Parisian bedbugs should be allowed to run our civil service. <laughs> it's sort of appalled mainstream opinion and a number of senior clergymen refused to read it out. But being a king who badly needed to win over public opinion, James thought it might be a good idea to lock these seven bishops in the Tower of London. Yeah, amazingly, John, that only seemed to make things worse. Oh. <laughs> Nothing he did seemed to increase his popularity. Now even the Tories who had supported him as heir to the throne were starting to turn against the king. And the sense of crisis is already reaching a crescendo when the final straw came in the shape of a little baby boy. Oh. No. Yes, the cards came into the maternity unit with deepest sympathy on the birth of your son. James's wife gave birth to a son, James oh, Stewart. No. Not to be confused with the American actor, Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> oh, hold on there, Mr. Potter. My father may not have been much of a businessman. <laughs> Do you want to get distracted again? Come on. <laughs> okay. James would one day be known as the old pretender, the father of Bonnie Prince Charlie. Yes, never had the birth of a son and heir to the monarch been greeted with such abject depression. The boy would clearly be brought up a Catholic and his gender put him first in line ahead of the Protestant daughters from James's first marriage. Oh, their plans fallen apart. Oh. With mum and dad being Catholic, it seemed like there was now a long line of Catholic monarchs stretching out into the future. And that might mean another civil war. Uh, it might be back to Catholic Queen Mary burning bickers again. And that's not what you want when you're planning Christmas, is no. it? Yeah, so the people who really wished this hadn't happened started putting around rumours that it hadn't. A conspiracy theory quickly spread around the parentage of the child. And it was soon widely believed that the baby was not royal at all, but had been smuggled into the royal bedchamber in a warming pan. Uh, a warming pan, by the way, for those modern people who prefer to use hot water bottles or electric blankets. Um, they're those great big circular copper dishes, aren't they, with the long handles that you see them on the walls of oldie-worldy pubs. Exactly right. Yeah. For my money, the warming pan detail was the inspired extra touch that any good propagandist knows is required to give a complete fiction the air of truth. By managing to convince themselves that James was deceiving them, James's opponents acquired some vague moral authority sort for the illegal, treasonous course that they're about to pursue. 
So before the birth of the baby prince, James's Protestant daughter Mary had been next in line to the throne and she was married to the man who'd made it his life's mission to oppose the rise of Catholic France. Yes, William of Orange, so-called because he loved to tear his chocolate orange. Who doesn't, John? Yeah. He had only married Mary in the hope of adding England to the military alliance he'd forged against the French. And now he received a letter from a group of leading English Protestants inviting him to invade England. Come so, on in. Come on in. Come on, invaders. So though these senior figures were from all parts of the country and included members of Parliament and the Bishop of London, they had no legal authority. They were not acting upon any mandate from the Commons, the Lords or the Privy Council. It'd be like some random posh chaps today writing a letter to the Times saying, I think there should be a military coup and the army going, well, we didn't want to do this, but when the call came, yeah, exactly. what did we do? <laughs> so, so the invitation was all that William needed to fulfil his lifelong ambition to secure the English crown. And on the day that the letter was dispatched, the seven bishops were formally acquitted in court. King James could see his power already slipping away. So William landed at Torbay. That's Devon, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. On the totemic Protestant anniversary of November the 5th, <laughs> just to wind everyone up a bit. Um, you can listen to our recent episode on the gunpowder plot. Yes. And James marched west to meet him with an army that was large and well-equipped. But although James was militarily well-prepared, He'd already lost the propaganda war. I mean, they basically went, come on in, have a pasty. Yeah, have a cream tea. Have a cream tea, have a scone, but you're in Devon, so cream yeah, first. Get that right. He yeah. that. Imagine if he'd gone in and put jam first, could have changed oh, the History would have been history. different. They said, we're not having him now yeah, here with his fancy jam and cream ways. <laughs> so, yeah, well, because as well as his 21,000 soldiers, William had also brought a printing press and he quickly distributed pamphlets in English, declaiming James's shocking mistreatment of churchmen, repeating the scandalous story that the royal baby was an imposter, plus recipes, horoscopes, Sudoku <laughs> puzzles and much, much more. So as towns across the country declared themselves for William, the invader, Officers quit James's army to join the other side. The Navy declared itself for the Protestant cause. So James got as far as Salisbury Plain, where he paused and waited, and he dithered and fussed over the minor details. He kept getting nosebleeds. I suppose he was quite stressed. <laughs> yes. Um, and his high command found themselves preoccupied with trying to find something to stem the bleeding. <laughs> so they're more worried about his nosebleeds. Oh, God. But that was the only bloodshed there would be. James suddenly abandoned his post, sent his wife and baby to France, France and then prepared to follow them. And on the night of the 10th of December, he tiptoed down the back stairs of Whitehall Palace to the Thames and from a little rowing boat, he threw the great seal of his royal office into the river, somehow imagining that this would make the government of the country impossible. And then he headed for the coast in disguise. So William didn't want James in the country to become a rallying point for royalists, but he didn't want to kill him either and because then, then he'd just create a Catholic martyr. Right. So James's decision to sneak abroad was probably the best result he could have hoped for anyway. He didn't have to sneak abroad, did he? He, could have just, no. he would have put him on a boat anyway, probably. Yeah. Um, and William was jubilant at the ease with which all of this had happened for him. Except then... A couple of eagle-eyed yokels on the south coast identified James and brought him back to London. Oh, <laughs> oh we caught him, sir. <laughs> Trying to flee the country he was, but we was too sharp for him. And he's like, oh, spiffing, really excellent. Thank you so much. Now, why don't we keep him prisoner in this room here? The one with the open window and the horses loosely tied up outside. <laughs> and then James escaped a second time. And with him finally having fled the country, his opponents somehow surmised that this amounted to an abdication of the throne. 
And I think that's a good, dramatic point to take a break, John. It's a Um, thrilling story. Oh, isn't it? We'll be back after these words from our sponsor. And welcome back to We Are History, where we are talking the glorious revolution of 1688. So it's commonly believed that no foreign army has successfully invaded Britain since 1066. But that isn't strictly true, as we've seen. No. Because whatever we think about James II, he was the rightful king of England and Scotland. It was just he was Catholic. Yeah. And William of Orange had no legal claim to the crown. And his invading army consisted of his fellow countrymen from Holland, who had German, Danish and Huguenot soldiers with them. So there may have been no battle, no fight. We may have let them in. Everyone may have been pleased to see them. But James didn't flee his realm because he thought William might tease him about his nosebleed. <laughs> yes. It was an invading foreign army was the key factor in this illegal coup d'etat. Right? Yeah, so the last foreign power to invade England by definition, was not the Normans, but the Dutch in 1688. Oh, right, Angela. God, you're so anti-Dutch. All the time going on about (laughs) tulips and windmills. Give it a rest, Barnsley. (laughs) So why aren't Britons forced to wear clogs and speak impeccable English like the Dutch do? Well, although the English were shocked to see Dutch guards standing outside the royal palaces and William's army was kept close to London during the ensuing election, the whole revolution was achieved through negotiation between two groups of European Protestants who cooperated against a common enemy. They put their religion above nationalism and respect for the law. Yeah, I mean, it's a cliche that history is written by the winners, but if James had beaten William in battle that year, today we'd celebrate the event as another great patriotic victory, like the Armada or the Battle of Britain, where the British saw off another foreign invader and remained a proud and independent sovereign state. Yeah, instead it's been spun as the glorious revolution or the bloodless... We wanted it, honest. Yeah, the bloodless (laughs) revolution, in order to accommodate the uncomfortable truth that a foreign king took the British throne by turning up with a huge army. Uh, In his propaganda, actually, William claimed that he had merely come to assist the English resolve their grievances in their own way. And uh, now the politicians began to debate the legal niceties of how this might work. Because legally, James would have to remain king. Just because he's fled doesn't mean, you know, that's not an abdication, even though it might have been taken as such. So his daughter Mary would have to act as a regent in his absence. That's what they thought. Or or if we do say that James abdicated, then we can crown Mary, the Protestant daughter, and William could be her regent. Yes, William uh, Mary was his sister, actually. Could, um, yeah. yeah. Only now did William make his intentions clear. The English establishment was shocked. He was like, duh, I thought he was turning up with a massive army just to be helpful. But now he's going around saying he wants to be king himself. Well, who would have thought who it, Who would have thought it? You'd yeah. invade and, and go, I want to be king now. Yeah. Um, when Mary had first... So Mary is James's sister, yes. but she's married to William yes. Orange. And when she'd first been introduced to her future husband... She cried for a day and a half, John. And who can blame her? Because she was 13. <laughs> different times, Angela, different times. I know. But he was this short, hunched, wheezy Dutchman. Well, was he Dutch, German, yeah, he whatever? Was, yeah. He's 12 years older than her. He lacked charm. He spoke poor English. And yeah. she's married off to him. Yeah. And though the princess was repelled by a suitor, William was determined to marry her. Mm. Uh, she had that special sort of heir to the English throne <laughs> characteristic that is so hard to find in a girl. That elusive 
going to be queen of a major European power quality that none of the other girls on Tinder so far seem to possess. <laughs> yeah. And because Mary was actually the one who had the claim to the throne, it was eventually agreed that they would reign jointly. Mm. And that's the first and still the only dual monarchy Britain has ever had. But of course, this was a complete sham as well. William alone was granted executive power. And for us still to refer to the reign of William and Mary as if she had a say in anything other than the colour of the bedroom curtains is it's yeah. basically going along with a bit of 17th century spin dreamt up to mollify some long dead Tories. Yeah, quite. And there were many who were deeply uncomfortable about the unconstitutional nature of what had just happened. The Archbishop of Canterbury actually refused to crown him. They had to get in an agency archbishop. It's the only, it's the only solution. So by passing uh, an act to hand William the crown while James and his heir were still alive, the monarchy and parliament inadvertently crossed a sort of major staging post in the evolution of British democracy. Not only did parliament do away with a principle of hereditary monarchy, it also exercised this right by outlining the path of succession for the foreseeable future. Yeah, if William and Mary produced no heirs, the crown were passed to Mary's younger sister Anne. In the event of Anne dying childless, they managed to track down this German family in Hanover who would no doubt be delighted to learn that they were distant relations of the British royal family and had inherited a large island off the northwest of Europe. All of this, mm. of course, was to make it abundantly clear that any Catholic Stuarts who had previously sent in their CVs need not reapply for the position. So despite Tory opposition to the abolition of the hereditary principle, dozens of Catholic contenders to the English throne were bypassed. And they included Louis XV of France, Louis XV of Spain, Charles VI, the Holy Roman Emperor. But apart from its sort of now embarrassing sectarian overtones, the Bill of Rights and the Act of Settlement were sort of major steps forward in Britain's journey from an absolutist monarchy to a parliamentary democracy. And it formed a major part of... Uh, Britain's famously unwritten constitution, Angela. Yes. An interesting aside, there was a paragraph in it about the right to bear arms in the oh, British Bill of Rights. And just later on, we went, that's not a very good idea. Get rid of that. Get rid of that. So you, America, can. you can get Any rid of that. Any Americans listening, you can just go, oh, that's not relevant to how we live today. This was Let's 60, get rid of that, that one. That was 100 years before you wrote your constitution, Americans. Yeah. Just cross that bit out. Things yeah, move on. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Things can change. Yeah. Uh, so Parliament had learned the lesson of the Restoration in 1660, where they sort of accidentally, foolishly <laughs> recreated a dictatorship and decided to trust the king's good nature. From now on, Parliament's supremacy was set down in law. That couldn't happen again. Yes, so it would be illegal for a monarch to collect taxes by royal prerogative or to maintain a standing army without the consent of Parliament. The king could not suspend or dispense laws. He could not intervene in debates in Parliament, nor interfere in justice by tampering with juries or setting up his own court. Yep, one Christmas message on the telly, that's it. That's all set down yes. in 1688. <laughs> so uh, before William could try out his new kingdom, there was a small matter of his predecessor James to deal with. James sailed over to Ireland. He landed at Kinsale, lovely spot, check it out. And um, he summoned a Catholic parliament that recognised him as king. And with French support, James planned to use Ireland as his base to reconquer England. And the Irish, meanwhile, saw this as a chance to assert their independence from the English, claim back the lands that had been stolen from them. So it's all kicking off. Yeah. And in June 1690, he yeah. landed with an army of continental mercenaries 
patched up with a few Ulster volunteers who flocked to his cause. And on July the 12th, uh, this is an important date if you, for our Northern Irish listeners yes. know where this is going, um, the two kings met on the banks of the River Boyne. Yes. Um, you may have noticed, like, if you've got a Google calendar, it yeah. always has the Battle of the Boyne in there. Yeah. You, this is the what it is if you didn't Northern know. Yeah. yeah. So both men have been crowned king of England at different points. Yeah. But anyone suggesting a compromise involving some sort of job share... Frankly, they're going to have their work cut out. That's not going to happen. Yeah, before the battle even began, actually, a cannonball fired from across the river hit William on the shoulder. Had it struck his head and killed him, Irish and British history might have taken a very different course. The king was injured, but not so seriously that he could not continue to direct his troops. And James's ineffectiveness as a leader was exposed once again and his forces were routed. Yes, the battle was decisive, but only because James decided so. Um, Despite there being considerable support for the Stuart cause, once again, the cowardly and defeatist James fled to France, earning himself the Irish nickname, sorry to any Irish speakers out there, uh, Seamus... Chaka? Kaka? Yeah, James the Shite. It yeah, means. it means James the Shite. Yes. James the Shite. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1690, of course, still a very significant date in the sectarian circles of Northern Ireland and parts of Scotland as well. Yes. My favourite joke in Train Spotting 2, I don't know if you know this, but they, they, they're in Divided Glasgow. There's an event where all these Protestant, Unionist, anti Catholic Ranger supporters are in the pub singing anti Catholic songs. And Renton nicks all their wallets and goes to the cash machine. And he knows that all the unionists will have the same four-digit pin, which is 1690. So he cleans them all out. 1690, of course, being the date of the Battle of the Boyne. It's such an acutely observed and erudite joke. It needs explaining on loads of film forums. But what the hell, I think it's all the better for it. Yeah, such good scene. Uh, and a decade after that, after the Battle of the Boyne, not yes. train spotting too, <laughs> there came the Act of Settlement, 1701, that said no Catholics on the English, Scottish or Irish throne. Any royal marrying a Catholic would be disqualified from the throne. Do you know when that was overturned, Angela? When it became permissible for a British royal to marry a Catholic without losing their place in the line of succession? Go on, John. 2013. Wow. Yeah, it's quite yeah. recent, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, you still can't be a Catholic and supreme head of the Church of England. It seems a bit picky but there we go (laughs) but the glorious revolution and britain's system of government that followed gave it a sort of vital head start in europe you know as the continent unknowingly stumbled into the modern era a less feudal hierarchy allowed talent to flourish and the limited freedoms of the press challenged corruption and incompetence and so unlike the absolute monarchs in France and Spain, the English Parliament had ensured that Britain had a modern and effective tax collecting system. This meant that England was able to mobilise surprisingly large amounts of money at times of war, punching above its weight on battlefields of Europe and on the high seas. Yeah, France's population was nearly four times that of England's, but Louis XIV's finances were archaic, chaotic and corrupt, and the growing debts of the French monarchy would be a major factor in its destruction at the end of the 18th century. Oh, France has a revolution. Don't tell me that. We haven't done that yet. I'm working on it as we speak, Oh, John. good, good. We well, will uh, be don't doing tell me what it. happens. Don't tell me what happens. <laughs> Hope the king makes it. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> anyway, until modern times, and this is why I wanted to do this episode, the Glorious Revolution was Britain's foundation myth. It was the uh, piece of history by which we identified ourselves. And uh, the Americans have 1776, the French have 1789. But for Britain, boasting about the mother of parliaments, 1688 was the date that Britain succeeded in doing away with the supreme right of the monarch without chopping anyone's head off. So it's a big deal. 
But at some point in our lifetime, somehow we all decided that Britain's foundation myth was actually World War II. Uh, <laughs> I think it was on the 100th repeat of Dad's Army. Yeah. But I say, make it part of the national curriculum. Don't make the kids do the Tudors over and over again. The end of the Stuarts, that's the main thing. And teachers everywhere can do their own Jimmy Stewart impression to puzzled rooms of 11-year-olds. <laughs> oh, oh, hold on there, Mr. Potter. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> And that brings us to the end of the glorious revolution. Thanks, John. That was really interesting. Thanks, John. That was very interesting. Um, <laughs> enjoyed that. John just prompted me to say thanks, John, by the way, in case you didn't hear that. Uh, I was going to say it, John. Yeah, I was just yeah, getting yeah. ready. Oh, Mr. Thank Potter. Thank you, John, for probably the best episode we've ever done. Thank oh, you. Oh, hold on there. I'm, uh, Mary did it all. <laughs> I think John chose this episode because he can do a Jimmy Stewart impression. That's the only sort reason of, why. Ne- next week we'll be doing the history of Roland Rat because that's the only other one he's got. But anyway, <laughs> um, that is the the end of this week's episode thank you for listening big thank you to all our brilliant patreon supporters yes. um you know who you are uh, it's because of you largely that we can do this if you would like to join our patreon gang and it does mean you get access to exclusive episodes live zooms loads of great merch we got mugs and yeah uh, what they call coasters t-shirt i'm not i forgot to put my t-shirt on. i was gonna wear my t-shirt today. we've got a new one that says Angela, let me explain feminism to you once again. Yeah, we have. We genuinely have. That sounds like a joke, but we have. Uh, (laughs) So do visit patreon.com slash wearehistory if you'd like to join up. And if you feel like giving us a nice five-star review, that would be much appreciated and wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, we'll be back next week. And it sounded like Angela had an idea there for what to do. We're going to be scooting across the continent next week, John. That's a little teaser for you. So join us for a bit of interrailing. No, Interrailing gap years. <laughs> yes. Going around traveling all the gaps of Europe. Yes. <laughs> Bye. Bye. We Are History is written and presented by Angela Barnes and John O'Farrell, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The lead producer is Anne Marie Luff, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison, with artwork by James Parrott. We Are History is a Podmasters production. <laughs>